0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And if you could turn back to page 1179 in the Church Bibles to Philippians 2, to the second of the readings that Janet read for us. And as you do that, let me pray for us. O God, the King of glory, who exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven, do not leave us desolate, but send your Holy Spirit to strengthen and exalt us to the place where our Saviour Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, as Paul mentioned, in in case you you missed it, there is a general election coming. And as the uh, poet Roger McGough put it, everyone wants to be the leader. I want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. Can I be the leader? Can I? I can? Promise? promise. Yippee! I'm the leader! I'm the leader! Okay, what shall we do? Who's in charge? Who's in charge? It's an important question, not just in election time, but any time. It's an important question because sometimes it feels as if nobody is in charge. Take the situation in Germany after the First World War. In 1921, an American dollar would get you 75 German marks. In 1922, 400. By early 1923, it plunged to 7,000 marks. Financial payments demanded by the Treaty of Versailles meant that the German mark was in freefall so by August 1923 a $1 dollar was worth a million marks. And by November of the same year it was worth almost a staggering 4 billion marks. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his opposition to Hitler, he wrote to his parents in October 1923 asking for some financial help. He wrote I don't have much money on hand. I had to spend six billion for bread. Who's in charge? When a strong, wealthy nation like Germany can be reduced to poverty, sometimes it feels as if no one is in charge. And if you think that couldn't happen here, you need to read more history. Who's in charge? Sometimes it feels like nobody's in charge. Sometimes it feels like the very worst people are in charge. Just take the 20th century. The list of despotic and tyrannous leaders is long and depressing. And there seems little improvement, does there, at the beginning of the 21st century. Take Bashar al-Hassad's. Before the war, around 22 million people lived in Syria. 22 million. Around half of them have had to flee their homes. That's about 50 families for every hour of the conflict. Four and a half million have fled to other countries. Quarter of a million have been killed. More than faceless statistics, these are people with names, Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, soaking the soil of that ancient land with an endless river of tears. Who's in charge? Sometimes it feels like no one's in charge. Sometimes it feels like the very worst people are in charge. And before we jump too quickly and easily to Jesus, as if Christ's divine rule makes life simple... Before we jump too easily to Jesus, spare a thought for those Egyptian Christians who saw friends and family murdered and wounded as they gathered to celebrate Palm Sunday just a few weeks ago. Sometimes, even for believers, life seems chaotic and painful and confusing. Of course without a god to rail at why should life be anything other than chaotic and painful and confusing as the Nobel prize-winning french biologist Jacques Monod put it man at last knows that he is alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe out of which he emerged by chance If life feels chaotic, well, why are we surprised? If it's just stuff plus time plus chance, then perhaps life really is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yet all of us sense that such despair is unpersuasive. Surely somebody is in charge of this beautiful but broken world. The question is, who? Now, writing to a group of first century Christian believers in Philippi, Paul explains the central importance of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. For Christ provides both the possibility of life and the pattern for life. The possibility of life? Well, Paul says that comes by having a righteousness, a right relationship with God, a righteousness not of your own through obeying the law, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. The pattern for life? Well, Paul says if you're right with God through faith in Christ, if, if you're right with God not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what Christ has done, If you're right with God through your trust in Christ, then if you look down to chapter one and verse 27, Paul says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Christ alone gives you life. And once you're alive in him, he shows you how to live, a pattern for life. So chapter two, verse five, Paul says your attitude to one another, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who's in charge? Well, in the first place, Paul says, there is the surprise rule of a crucified king. The surprise rule of a crucified king. Verse five, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Of course, Paul was a true Israelite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, as he writes later in the book a Hebrew of Hebrews. And Paul looked at the person of Jesus and was persuaded that God became man in Bethlehem. It's an astonishing conclusion for a Jew, but a conclusion that was grounded in the evidence of history and sealed by the work of the Spirit. The one clothed in the garments of divine majesty, sharing the glory of God for all eternity, He didn't consider his status to be used for his gain, but for others as a gift. He became a slave without any rights at all. Born like human beings, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Of course, the account of Christ's birth and death is so familiar that it's difficult to recover the surprise The shock, the scandal of divine rule. God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Truth is, familiarity dulls wonder. For me, the artist Mark Wallinger captured something of the surprise of divine rule in his sculpture Ecce Homo. Wollinger produced a life-size statue of Christ, hands tied behind his back, a crown of golden barbed wire on his head. Back in 1999, just before the millennium, the statue statue occupied the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, perched on the very edge of the stone pedestal, dwarfed by the surrounding oversized symbols of pomp and power. Nelson's column towered over the tiny figure of Christ and massive statues of royal rule and military might filled the three neighboring plinths. Ecce homo, the Latin for behold the man. Pilots mocking announcement to the crowd after they demand the release of Barabbas. I think it was a fitting sculpture to mark the millennium. 2,000 years since the one who being in very nature God made himself nothing became a slave without rights obedient to death even death on a cross as the first world war poet Edward Chilito put it the other gods were strong but thou wast weak they rode but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Or in the words of the theologian Peter Jensen, Jesus is never so godlike as he is on the cross. Jesus is never so godlike as he is on the cross. Who's in charge of this beautiful but broken world? Well, Jesus Christ is. But his world is surprising. He was crowned not at a throne but a cross. Not amidst civic splendor but in a place of public shame. Not in power to public acclaim but in weakness to universal derision. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed. For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. But if Christ's rule in his incarnation and his death is surprising, in his resurrection and ascension, we see that it is supreme. The surprising rule of a crucified king, the supreme rule of a risen and ascended king, When somebody remembers your name, you feel known, acknowledged, valued. When someone forgets your name, you feel slighted, unimportant, ignored. Naming someone recognizes their value. And of course, people name things as well as people. People name houses, cars, chickens. Chickens my wife has named all her chickens. Betty, Doris, Barbara, Gladys, Judith, Tilly. Some friends who share these names feel greatly honored. (laughs) Others less so. But the truth is we love our chickens and the boys love the eggs. Now, of course, in the Bible, names are far more than mere designations. Names have weights, meaning, significance, and all the more so when it comes to the name of God. Philippians 2, if you like, marks the climax of divine naming. Throughout history, God revealed his name, and he revealed his name that we might know him. Ultimately, he revealed his name in his son, in the name Jesus, Joshua. Because as the angel said to Mary, you shall name him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. And through his death, resurrection and ascension, this Jesus is seen to be the Christ, God's promised king. And Jesus who is the Christ is, Paul says, none other than the Lord Now, of course, all authority in heaven and earth were Jesus' by, name by nature. Now they are his in the acclamation of his Father. The one clothed in the garments of divine majesty, sharing the glory of God for all eternity, humbled himself to death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God gave him the name that is above every name. A name that will be universally acknowledged, for every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet, and yet, although Jesus is the perfect King, crucified, risen, ascended, still his people cry now, How long, O Lord? How long? Sometimes even for believers, life seems chaotic and painful and confusing. It certainly seemed that way for these Philippian believers. If Jesus was king, then why was Paul in prison? If Jesus was king, then why were other Christians trying to make life more difficult for him? If Jesus was king, then why was Paul's life so often marked by hunger and want and suffering? How can God be in charge when life is full of so much difficulty and disappointment and discouragement? And if they ask those questions about Paul's situation and circumstances, I have no doubt that there were times when they asked them about their own. Live long enough. Love deeply enough. And you will inevitably face hard questions about God's supreme rule in Jesus. Truth be told, it is hard to care for a parent with dementia and not wonder whether Jesus really is in charge. Unimaginably painful to bury one of your own children and not question whether life really is just random rather than ruled. It's difficult to face the pain of singleness and childlessness and depression and not think that if Jesus really is king, sometimes it feels like he has a strange way of showing it. But the message of the New Testament, the message of Philippians is that if a crucified king is a comfort in our suffering, a risen and ascended king offers us hope in our pain. Now just cast your eye over to chapter 1 and you see how Paul writes to these first century believers. He writes thankful for their partnership in the gospel and chapter 1 verse 6, confidence confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus you can only be confident of that if you know that Jesus is the crucified risen and ascended king now the fact that you and I are such unpromising material it's not a problem His work in you is not thrown by your circumstances. It's not thwarted by your sin. It is not threatened by your doubts. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The truth is, if Jesus really is king, it changes the way you see life and it changes the way you live life it changes the way you see life because you know that deep down somehow eventually when all struggles are over when all the pain has ceased when all the tears have been dried somehow God will bring good from difficulty for our eternal blessing and for his eternal glory sometimes it is incredible. Incredibly hard to see that is true. Incredibly hard to trust that God can bring good out of the sorrows and sadness of life. But if Jesus is really king? Now sometimes we see Jesus' sovereign rule in this life. So Paul could tell the Philippians that his imprisonment had really served to advance the gospel. Why? Well, because, verse 13 of chapter 1, because some heard of Christ who wouldn't otherwise have. And because many Christians were, chapter 1, verse 14, many Christians were encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Sometimes we see Jesus' sovereign rule in this life, but sometimes we do not. Sometimes, oftentimes God's mercy seems severe and his ways seem hard. We can only walk by faith and not by sight. We can only stand with those great heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Believers who were attacked and destitute, persecuted, ill-treated. None of them receiving in this life what God had promised. Sometimes we can only stand with them. And with the bruised and battered saints from within this church family. Trusting like Paul. That because Jesus is king. He who began a good work in them and us will carry it on to completion. The Knowing that Jesus is king changes the way you see life. It changes the way you live life. If Jesus is king, it means, chapter 1, verse 27, it means we need to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We need to obey, as Paul puts it in in chapter two. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And because Jesus is the perfect king, crucified, risen and ascended, because Jesus is the perfect risen and ascended king, when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, then chapter two, verse 13, God works in us to will and to act according to his good purposes the only a king who is really and truly and eternally in charge can do that. Only the one who is exalted in the highest place, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, only the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord can take the faltering, failing mess of our lives and bring his good purposes to bear. Nate Wilson is a young... American novelist, married with young children. He's written several great children's books, books which I enjoyed reading to my kids when they were younger. And he also wrote a book for grown ups called Death by Living. It's a book that meditates on what it means to live by faith in the midst of this beautiful but broken world, in the midst of tears and mortality. A few weeks back, he was diagnosed with a massive brain tumor. He says, It is likely that my tumor had already begun growing while I was writing Death by Living. Which means, as my sweet wife pointed out, that this is a great opportunity for us not to be hypocrites. God is good, God is faithful. This is the storm we were meant to weather. This is the bull I was meant to ride. I can't hit my characters with pain and hardship to spice up their stories and not be willing to face anything life-threatening myself. See, knowing that Jesus is king, it not only changes the way you see life, it changes the way you live life there are, as Nate's father points out, only two types of events for God's people. Pleasant blessings and hard ones. Pleasant blessings and hard ones. And because Jesus is the perfect king, crucified, risen and ascended, he knows the full extent of our sorrows and more. And he will turn the darkest of days to a new hope filled dawn. Well, let's just have a moment of quiet and pray. And Paul will lead us in our prayers.